Hey everyone, I'm Katie Nera. Welcome to Ben Better. How about you? This is a podcast that focuses on mental health told through my own experiences. Get your weekly prescription with me. P.S. I'm not a doctor. But each week, me and my guests will help break down what mental health and mental illness is in a relatable way, as well as give tips and tools for support. Today is our first episode. I am going to be interviewed about my own depression, the history of it, blah, blah, blah. We have Jessica Cantor here remotely since we are still quarantining. Jessica's a writer, producer, creative consultant, co-founder of I Am A Voter, and the editor-in-chief of Lala Magazine. She's a native Angelino who openly discusses her history with anxiety and depression in order to help encourage and normalize broader conversations around mental health. Hey, girl. Hi, Katie. Hi, Jessica. How are you? I've been better. I've been better, but I've been worse. How are you? I think the same. I mean, it's such a good title for a new podcast because especially right now, everybody's kind of in that same boat. How can you say you're great, but at the same time, we're healthy, we're here, we're doing this podcast. So (laughs) we're certainly doing better than we could be, but Right. It could definitely be better. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. This is true. You've been in quarantine for most of this time with your boyfriend, you were telling me. Yes. We have not left the house at all. We've been very strict. Yes. Um, I still, even though the CDC tells you you don't have to do this, I still sanitize our groceries. I mean, we're crazy people over here. No, I even, I have my group of like 10 people that I see but I still will get out soap and water and wash everything. You want to be safe, but you don't want to go nuts, but it's like, it's a fine line. Well, speaking of going nuts. <laughs> there's another <laughs> tagline for that. You want to be safe, but you don't want to go nuts. I mean, I think I was so honored to be invited, but I think maybe I've been invited to help you introduce this podcast a little bit because I am a little bit nuts. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that. Maybe that's, maybe instinctively I knew that and that's why I thought of, I thought of you. We just, we attract each other. Yeah. But I think everybody's a little bit nuts, right? I mean, especially during this time and, and hopefully we'll get into this, but I think that's why you're starting this podcast is You know, it shouldn't be crazy to say that because we're all individuals and we all have our own struggles and sometimes we're a little nutty and that makes us special and interesting and cool and certainly comes with its own challenges, but doesn't have to be a death sentence or something that we're ashamed of. I think when I first asked you to do this, we were talking about how with mental health and, and mental issues like because it's not a broken bone and you don't have a cast or it's not something you can see from the outside, it's extra challenging because people, I think, dismiss it so easily. Or now they just think, oh, everyone has anxiety or everyone's depressed or everyone's a little OCD when actually, no, there's actually people that have been, you know, diagnosed clinically with this disease, you know, and it is, especially in a time like this, it can be really challenging. And that is one of, one of the reasons I wanted to do this, where people you think aren't depressed 
can sometimes be the worst sufferers of that. Right. Tell us who you are, Katie. I grew up in Baltimore. I lived in New York before living in LA. And then I've lived in Los Angeles for, oh my gosh, I feel like it's almost 15 years now. I've been in LA. I'm an actor and a writer. And then I also have a clothing line, uh, Nara Simone, that specializes in like custom jackets. So a jack of all trades. And I've also suffered with depression and other mental issues for most of my life. So that is how we came to this podcast and this conversation. So that's, that's me. That's <laughs> and I'm we saying. love you. Oh, well, so you. tell us about that childhood. Tell us about the kid, Katie. Where did you grow up? When yes. did you first sort of have an inkling that you might have some mental health struggles? And how was that received? Was that? Right. Well, I, I grew up in the 80s where when therapy was not talked about, it was not, um, it was not like cool to have anxiety. It wasn't uh, like the way it is in LA where everyone has a therapist, you know, or everyone ends up going to rehab, but then they are not sober like two years later and I'm not dismissing that but it's 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 no it's a different experience I mean I grew up I grew up in LA and you were not a cool kid if you didn't have a therapist like I remember one of my best friends begging her parents to let her see a therapist because we all did really yeah that's see for me it was like don't talk about this you know like when I when I was five I was diagnosed with ADHD and I went on Ritalin and I, you know, was just so hyperactive as a child. And then probably when I started to go through puberty, I just, you know, I feel like anxiety wasn't even a word then that people use to describe how you were feeling. And it was just sort of having bad thoughts about things going on all the time or being worried about people hurting my family or me. And so my mom said, okay, you should go talk to a therapist. So like growing up in Baltimore, like you did have to be kind of aware people could hurt you because the city is not that safe, but it was more just things that didn't make sense. You know, it was, it was, um, you know, my kind of OCD was completely non sequitur. It wasn't, let me check if the oven's on or if I turn off the lights and wash my hands like 35 times, which is now what you have to do with COVID-19. But back then it would be like, oh, that you're OCD. Mm-hmm. My OCD was just, it was a lot of fear-based things that didn't make any sense. Like what? Um, like I would have to tap the top of a doorway like five times or think the house was going to blow up. It was really do or die thoughts. Like if I don't do this, this will happen. And I still think of things like that if I'm under a lot of stress, but it's become a lot better through medication and therapy that the OCD where the depression has been much harder to manage, you know, it just, yeah, it's just was much, it's been much harder, but that, so that really happened around puberty. And, and I remember even as but a kid, it first yeah. started when you were five, well, the, were a- the, ADHD, the, the yeah. ADHD and the that, hyperactive and yeah. But even if you look at photos of me as a child, like I'm always looking at my hands and I'm always very in my thoughts. You can just tell where like my sister's just smiling or I always felt very in my head mm. and not, not free. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how else to describe it. Like I was just always worried a lot as a child. 
Did you have a history of depression in your family or anxiety no. or any mental health that you knew of? They're not a history of depression, but, but my family is neurotic. I mean, like now, if you, <laughs> if you, if you met my family, like you, like we thinking of my dad and my mom, like my dad is probably the cleanest person you've ever met. When now, when I, even with COVID, everyone's like, oh, we're not afraid to come to your house. Cause you're like so clean. I'm like, I am like, I, and then I think like, oh, I'm just neurotic. Like <laughs> that I want everything in its place or people feel safe coming to see me, which I guess I should take as a compliment, but I'm like, okay, so I'm just a neurotic person that should have been a surgeon. I don't know, but, but not, not depression. Like my mom and dad are not people or my sister that have ever been on antidepressants or that wake up feeling, ugh. some of my cousins have some issues, but it, but the majority of my family, I have to say, is not from them, I feel like, my depression. Even when people meet my parents, they're like, oh, they're so normal. And I'm like, well, that's nice. Like, because <laughs> I think they're expecting, I think they're expecting my mom to be like really over the top, like done up or like, and my parents are both from Michigan, like they're Midwest values, grounded people. And that sounds, as I say that, I'm like, ugh, does that mean I'm not Midwest values? grounded. I, I think I'd like to be, but I'd have to move out of LA. <laughs> you know, it's just, everyone, I guess, tends to go towards different paths or different areas, but it, it definitely wasn't something that I saw in my family, which may have even made it harder. And you feel even more weird where everyone else around you seems like they're happy when they get, you know, ice cream or happy when they, you know, meet the man of their, you know, and that wasn't really, you know, I was always had a, a sort of sadness. And I imagine as a kid, especially as you hit puberty and you started to have sort of some of the more OCD stuff take yeah. hold and that had to be even more isolating and also really scary, especially if you didn't have a history and awareness of mental health. Yeah, I think it was sort of, again, like dismissed in a way like, oh, that's just Katie, like picking up sticks and trash and doing these sort of these rituals that, and what I learned is it's really a form of control. Like you are experiencing anxiety and you can't control it. So I'm going to like pick up these sticks and towels because I can control that. That's honestly what a lot of anxiety, if you wanted to define like anxiety that comes from OCD. Like I've learned that where I, I see it even in other people where like when my grandfather was sick, my dad would like obsessively clean the kitchen. Cause it's like, Oh, I can't control what my dad's outcome is in the hospital, but I'm going to like clean these plates. Mm -hmm. And it gives people a sense of control. Maybe that's why my house is always clean. Like you, cause it's true. Like you can control like laundry. You can't control your brain. Mm -hmm. So that is definitely, I think, a characteristic of someone that suffers from OCD. And then you is have to realize, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, I would have to do exercises where like, you have to just leave all the towels on the floor and leave the house. It was very hard, but it helped. Like that's one of the exercises they have you do where you, you just have to like do the complete opposite and let the anxiety come and realize like, it's okay. Like the towel fairy isn't gonna come down and like blow up your house because you have towels on the floor. <laughs> But that's what you start I thinking. mean, I wish my anxiety <laughs> manifested itself into a very clean house. <laughs> well, how is yours? Mine is a little bit the opposite in that 
the more chaotic my inner brain mental mm-hmm. health is, the more chaotic my surroundings get. So you, it's a very that gives good, you comfort. No, it's just oh. a reflection of it. Okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Like everyone has, I'm sure their thing. And with, mm-hmm. with, with mine, I remember a therapist I went to for a while who was really helpful. He said there was some woman that was always in denial about going to therapy. And then one day she realized her whole house was clean, but her sponge. And she realized, I really need to come see you. Like I, I, I I've cleaned everything in the house. The only thing dirty is the sponge. Like what, you know, and that's, I, I think that's a good, it's a good barometer for me where I realize, okay, I need to just let this be, you know, not, not become so, cause, and that, but that's definitely, you know, a trigger. Yeah. It's so interesting because they say that a lot of uh, eating disorders have a lot to do with control as well. Absolutely. No, absolutely. That like, you can't control the um, body dysmorphia, I would imagine, right? In your mind, like you're looking in the mirror and you think you look awful, but I can control the number on the scale. Yeah, or to your point, maybe it doesn't even have to do with body dysmorphia or your body at all. Maybe you can't control that your parents are fighting or you can't control whether some college is going to accept you or you're going to get the promotion at work. Or your best friend is mad at you or whatever. But you you can can control control your weight. How many calories you put into your mouth that day. Yeah. But I think too, I mean, to your point, I, it's sort of trendy now for everyone to say like, oh, I have so much anxiety. Or, yeah. And I'm depressed. Yeah. Anxiety and, is more trendy than depression though. Let's be honest. It is. I agree with you. <laughs> I think, I feel like, you know, I, I have a goddaughter that talks about anxiety. You know what I mean? Like everyone, and by the way, like she is suffering from anxiety, but every, but it's funny how it's changed so much in a good way that everyone has a therapist and it's out in the open, you go into therapy where I always felt like I was a mental freak and I had to hide going to therapy. Actually, at one point in my school, they said, if you don't go to therapy, you can't come back here. So it's, it's really, it was such a different, I mean, the East coast is so different from LA, (laughs) like the way they, it was, you know, it's, it's such a more, I think just stricter, serious. They take everything way more seriously. I, I mean, the more, then. there's a lot more shame. Or I went to college on the East Coast and yeah. coming from LA where, again, everybody had a therapist and everyone talked about what meds they were on and what worked for them. And then getting to this like sort of old boys club East Coast. You were at Princeton, right? I was at Princeton. So this like Ivy League environment Right. And being my nutty LA, you know, quirky self and still at the same time struggling with real clinical anxiety and depression issues. It was interesting to see how people reacted to that because I had grown up in a world where it was okay to talk about that and it wasn't shameful and it wasn't something that was hush hush or, Mm -hmm. and at Princeton, it really sort of was in that sense. Really? It's kind of a culture shock to go yeah. from one to the other. But yeah. I, I do think it is trendy right now. And, and to your point, sometimes it's a good thing because right. you know, it's bringing it out into the open and more people are experiencing it. And then I do think there is a difference 
when this is something you've struggled with, like both of us have for Mm -hmm. our entire lives or years and years. My, my issues started manifesting around the time I was five as well. And interesting because they say that's when your personality fully develops. I don't know if that's still accurate. I didn't know. That's that's what a um, doctor told me that most kids' personalities and like neuroses are pretty developed by five. Well, yeah. And I do think there's a difference, you know, it's, it's one thing for people to be able to empathize, which I think is great and normalize Mm -hmm. it. It's another to really explain to someone that, you know, feeling a little bit nervous or stressed about something is not the same as feeling so paralyzed that you can't get out of bed and take a shower. And that feeling is, at least for me, very real at times. It's a very hard feeling to explain to anyone who hasn't experienced it because I can't even rationally or logically explain it to myself. Going back to Mm -hmm. as these OCD thoughts started Mm -hmm. creeping in and and you were an adolescent, Mm -hmm. then I guess tell us, walk us through any given day, what thoughts would creep through your head and how you would respond to them and then what you did about that or what your family did about that. It was so long ago, but if I, I take myself back there, if it was lunchtime and probably something happened where I, I feel like my OCD, I always felt like something was going to happen to the, my family or something tragic would happen to everyone at this school or something that some sort of not sequitur that didn't make sense. And Mm -hmm. I would feel heat all over my body and it was an uncontrollable urge where, oh, I have to do this. I have to get this sandwich out of the trash and take a quick bite of it, make sure no one sees me and then throw it away. So it is very shame. I felt very ashamed. You know, I, if I mm -hmm. was picking up the sandwich, picking up trash rocks, I'm not like shouting to my friends, like, look what I'm doing. It's a, it's a secret moment. Like I still do little things but mm-hmm. that, I mean, it's much more controlled. And they're not necessarily, it's not like you're enjoying taking a bite of that sandwich from the trash. You're probably no, grossed out at the same time. Yeah. No, you it's, just it's, think this is, I have to do this in order to save the school or the world <laughs> or the planet or to keep my mother so, from dying. It sounds so ridiculous, but I... I'll still even do it when I walk my dog. Like sometimes I'll pick up a little flower or a little stick. And I feel like even my dog is like, what the fuck are you doing? Like we already walked this way. <laughs> like, and I'm like, oh no, we have to go back. We have to get this little stick. And what is the thought in your <laughs> head now that makes you do that? It's silly. It's like, oh, you won't get this roll if you don't pick up this stick or, oh, Jessica won't want to do the podcast. I mean, it's usually something to do with work, something I can't control. I would like everyone to know I'm not taking sandwiches out of trash cans right now or eating them (laughs) or anything like that. And I've had to not pick up, I always pick up pennies, always. I I can't pass a penny and I've had to pass them because of COVID and they said it's on metal. So I've had to say, okay, I can't pick up these pennies. So that's, I've had to let that go. It's COVID's helping with my OCD in okay. many ways. Yeah. Well, then at least there's one silver lining there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool that you have been able to go to therapy and you are curious and you do learn about it and you make yeah. progress. And yeah, I, I 
too am lucky. I was able to go to therapy and still do. And, and I have to say, I don't always make progress. I yeah. certainly understand a lot of it, but I think it's important too for people to know that they might be feeling these things and it may pass. And hopefully eventually it certainly passes, but sometimes you work at it and you work at it and you see the right professionals and you throw money at the problem and you try all different things. And especially, I mean, I know we'll talk about this a little bit in your personal journey too. Sometimes things don't work right away or the first thing you try doesn't work or the hundredth thing you try doesn't work. I mean, I know I'm still trying to figure it out and I have never gotten to a point where I feel like, oh, that was it. That was really helpful. And you mean medicine wise or therapy wise or both? I've done a little bit of medicine. Um, admittedly, probably not enough to really Mm -hmm. give it a fair shot. I've done a lot of therapy and even the therapy I do now, I, I couldn't tell you for sure if it's helping or not. Right. And I think that's important too. It's, in some ways, it's, it is what you were talking about, like a broken leg or like a cancer, but you can't see it and it's less socially acceptable. But in other ways, you know, if it's a broken leg, the doctor knows how to treat you. Yeah. They x-ray you, they put your leg in a cast or they do an operation and you do physical therapy and eventually you heal. Right. Uh, For the most part, right? Whereas I think with mental health, it's a lot more trial and error. And a lot, you know, which one people don't really accept it as. Well, they they don't say it's real. Of a broken leg, right? It's like, okay, that's real, but now snap out of it. Yeah. Or, okay, but you'll feel better if you just get up and do something or just stop picking up those sticks, Katie. How hard could that be? Or like, Make a colorful breakfast. I'm like, I can't. Like I, someone once sent me an article. I mean, actually it was my mom. I was like, mom, she's like, add some blueberries and raspberries to your breakfast. I'm like, you add fucking blueberries and raspberries to your breakfast. Like I, like this doesn't, it's not helpful. What was that supposed to do for you? It was supposed to help you get out of bed. That you were going to have a colorful (laughs) breakfast and you'd be excited to get out of bed. I'm like, oh, I'm like, you don't get it. Yeah. It's written that, that I find what I find so annoying that especially right now with COVID, I find people, everyone's just like, everyone's depressed. You know, like if I talk about, and I, I think that that's just so dismissive. It's like, it's like saying to someone who's like, has cancer, like, oh, everyone has cancer. Like, you know what I, like what you're saying, like that people don't it's recognize It's interesting it. because it's on such a sliding scale. And I think for us, we don't want to be dismissive either of what people are going through because- with That's COVID, true. with the reckoning, with the history of racism in our country, right. with so much happening as a society, we're really going through trauma. And, yes. and it's normal and I think really common for a lot of people, even people who've never had anxiety in their whole life, to right. start to have these feelings. And so certainly we don't want to, you know, minimize that for them but at the same time there is a difference between situational anxiety and more mild cases of it and then something that you've been fighting for years and years and years and that is completely debilitating at times in your life which I think is yeah some of what you're talking about yeah it's true like um my 
psychiatrist was talking about how he's never seen in his practice how many people are now depressed, you know, ever. And so that it's true. It is, it is something to recognize because it's really just going to get, it, it sounds bad, like worse in the sense that if people don't address it and try to like nip it in the bud, you know, I think that there was a quote that uh, my friend had showed me where it's like, you know, you can exercise, you can, uh, it, it talks about how like you can do all this stuff for your body and, and X, Y, Z, but if you don't really address your mind, it doesn't matter. Mm. Like you won't really get become free. So once you sort of had these OCD thoughts manifesting themselves and it started to really affect your life as a preteen or teenager, then what happened? Did someone in your family step in? How did you first start going to therapy and what was that experience like for you? Uh, I think I first must have started going to therapy when I was like five or even, I mean, regularly though, yes, at 12, but I, and I, but I remember my first therapist, I hated him. He wore all brown and I refused to talk to him. So I would come to therapy and I would like throw my book bag down and I just wouldn't talk to him. I don't even know why I just didn't like him. And I mean, this I was is like when you're five or 12. I don't know. I'm going to have to ask my mom, but it was, okay. it was like sometime where I just was like, this guy is wearing all brown. <laughs> I, I think I must've been like, it wasn't 12 because yeah. I feel like I would sit on the floor and they were probably just like, this kid is so annoying. Give her some Ritalin so she calms down. Like what a little bitch. I don't know. And did I mean, you even understand what therapy was at that point? Probably. I mean, my, I come from, even though my dad is not a doctor, he comes from a family of OBGYNs. So I feel like I've always been someone that understood like doctors are here to like make you better. I'll, I mean, to a fault where I do like love going to a doctor's office and like lying on the table, like make me better. That implies that you already thought you were broken. Yeah, I definitely, my family is very pro-medicine, like pro, like this is how you fix things. And then I think what's been challenging for me is that it's taken a while to find the right medicine for my depression. And it's still not even, we're still like struggling with it. Now I'm still, I don't know why I say we, it's me. Like I'm still struggling with it. I, um, well, but, you and your doctor, right? You and your psychiatrist. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, but it's, it's funny that that's how, so I think when I went to therapy as a child, I, I was like, oh, in my mind, I probably thought like, there's something wrong with me and he's going to like observe me and like, tell me what's going on. So then Take me on that journey from that point through trying to quote unquote fix your depression or fix your anxiety, what that was like, and if it has been sort of a smooth road, if it took you zillions of therapists, if you right. are it, actively I, still working on it. Well, I went to multiple therapists throughout like preteens and then through high school. And at one point I was in trouble at high school and they said, oh, you have to see a therapist. There was just too many like outbursts. And I think it was me just trying to be the class clown and they're like, you should talk to someone. And, and then it was another person 
I never really found a great therapist through my adolescent and into teen years. I didn't really find a great therapist until I moved to New York. And then he was really great. And I had him for like over 10 years where then we would talk on the phone in LA from, and he would be in New York. And he was really, really helpful and really good. Um, but it really took time. It takes a lot of, I think, I think people can get discouraged if they're looking for a therapist because they expect it to be like you find someone similar to like if you have a doctor, you have a cold, right? Pass, you go in and gets fixed. And so they want to come in and see a therapist and, oh, I'm fine now. Like it rarely works like that. And sometimes you outgrow a therapist and that's not a bad thing either. Like I had someone uh, who's really young who was saying to me like, I don't know if this therapist is working for me. Like, should I switch? And I said, well, maybe talk to someone else, see how you feel. I said, but also you may not even realize what this therapist did for you till, much, till years later. Like that's mm -hmm. happened to me where I'm like, oh, I thought this guy was an idiot. But and like last year I realized he really helped me with this, you know? Yeah, sometimes you don't, I, I wouldn't find that till much later on. And I know you've talked a lot about how finding the right therapist is kind of like dating. It is. Like you, and so like finding a great guy, especially in LA, let's be real, is really hard. So you're going to go out with a lot of losers till you like find who you like. And sometimes you don't even find someone you like that great, but you're like, I guess they'll do. Like that's <laughs> sometimes, that's sometimes how therapy is. It's like, well, this guy's not great. Like my therapist is always like, you never, like I can tell he gets really happy. Like if I say like, you know what? Like you're all right. Like he has red hair and he'll kind of like blush, you know? And so I'm like, like and, and I'll be like, yeah, you're okay. Or he's like, oh, I did something right. You know, like I'm pretty hard on, on my doctors, but he's not cheap. So that's the other thing. So it's like, but it's true. You have to go through a lot of lem like lemons to find the lemonade. I mean, that mm -hmm. sounds really silly, but. And it, one therapist that might be a lemon for you could be a lemonade for somebody else. And, I, and that's, that's very true. It's very true. I know that you started taking meds quite young when they put yeah. you on Ritalin, but when did you start trying meds to help with the OCD and or the depression? So probably when I was around 16, I started taking different antidepressants. And I really didn't find till I was in New York that I, so that was probably around like, I was like 19 or 20 when I found like, okay, this is a good, this seems to be a good mix, you mm. know, but it, it took, a, it took like five years. I mean, that's how long it can take to find the right medicine. Mm -hmm. And trying different combinations of medicine yeah, and different You try dosages. different combinations. And I, I think also what, what is so awful about so many antidepressants is they have side effects like one of the major side effects of an SSRI is like weight gain. What is that? A serotonin right. reuptake inhibitor, I believe. Exactly. But as far as depression goes, like we have a hyperactive serotonin. You have serotonin. So you'll, you have an individual neuron that's going to translate down the line of your brain. Okay. And the neuron is firing. And once it fires at the end of the neuron, like the accents release dopamine. So dopamine is what you get, like you, when you fall in love, you're going to have tons of dopamine, right? When you just eat in Thanksgiving dinner, you have tons of dopamine. But people that are prone to depression, they ha they're having a lack of that being released. So when you go on an SSRI, the neurotransmitters are traveling to the space and they're going to attach to your receptors. 
And when you have enough connecting, it's going to trigger the other ones to fire. So they're like talking to each other. It's easier for the neurons to talk to each other. And then what it's called like a transporter, basically it's a vacuum, sucks that back up and then sends it back up to your brain. So when like a you, space age movie. But this is why it's so complicated to give to people medicine. Like it's actually pretty fascinating. So people that have depression, like my vacuum cleaner is like working overtime. My vacuum cleaner is like OCD. Like it's sucking everything up so quickly. Mm-hmm. What an SSRI does is it makes that hang out longer because that's going to give you the serotonin, which then is that gives you dopamine. So that, that basically, it, you, know, you want that to hang out longer. Like it, the medication is blocking the vacuum cleaner from cleaning it up. Um, the neurotransmitters stick around for a longer period of time. And what I found fascinating too is, you know, up there, there's the saying, it's in your gut. I have a gut feeling. You have more serotonin in your gut than in your brain, which well, is why a lot of times- Yeah, it's really cool. So it's why a lot of times you'll say, I feel it in my gut. Or when you go on an SSRI, you can have an upset stomach for like four to six weeks because it's, it's working with the serotonin in your gut. Mm-hmm. So it's actually, that's a real saying, like, I feel it in my gut. I have a gut feeling because it's, it's reacting with that. Yeah. So basically like I cannot not be on an SSRI. Like you don't want to be around me if I'm not on that. Why? Who are you when you're not? Tell us like like, what happens. I'm just, it's like not a good, like you just start, you're like when it's funny, my best friend, like she says, when she met me in New York, like the meds were not like, I wouldn't leave my apartment for days. I didn't want to get out of it. I just felt like nothing was worth it, you know? And it can be frustrating for me. And I think so many people that are dealing with that medicine, where if you're not on the right one, or you're having some bad side effect, you think this isn't right. Like, or, or you, or you stop taking it when really, when once you're off it, you realize, Oh God, I was better on it. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that's really depressing. It's, it's not to find the medicine that works right without the like crazy side effects or at least side effects that you yeah. can handle. Exactly. And I know for you, you handle hives sometimes. Yeah. Right? Like I was just like, you know what? I'm going to just deal with these hives or get itchy at night. Like when I start this new medicine or because I thought, I thought to myself, this is way more doable than having a migraine, you know, or gaining 15 pounds, you know, from this medicine. And, and I hate how like in our culture, you know, there's, there's so many young really musicians I'm thinking of right now that people are so critical of their weight and they've come out and said like, well, I'm actually on my meds for bipolar. Like, I'm sorry, I'm not like 20 pounds skinnier than I used to be. And that's really, I would imagine really difficult because it's either that or like you are going to be a little, I mean, heavier sounds horrible, but you know what I mean? So there's all these sort of things that especially women and men, you know, you're dealing with and you, like a lot of these can cause erectile dysfunction. I'm lucky where me, it's kind of the opposite. Sometimes these antidepressants are revving up my libido where I'm like, please, let's, let's slow it down. You should put, <laughs> put that on your Bumble profile, Katie. I, should I? Yes. No, literally, but it drives me crazy. My shrink will be like, you're so unusual. Like no one is more horny on this medicine. I'm like, well, I called so-and-so thanks to you putting me back on Zola. Everyone has a different interaction. Like a lot of people that take Zoloft 
their very their libido drops or they have erectile dysfunction. With me, it's the opposite. I'm telling you, that might be key for your next dating profile. For my dating app? Okay. So, you know. We have, to, we have to find the silver linings in these things. That's what I mean. So I'm like, I'll take, you know, being like more horny and hives. Okay. I have to watch what I eat more on this medicine than others. But like, it's better than killing yourself. You know, tell us, did it ever get that bad for you where it really came down to, I feel so unlike myself or so unhappy that I am thinking about ending it all? It did a year ago. My depression really got really bad where before it would, there'd be moments, but it was manageable. Like we've said, where I were through therapy and the right medication, I was able to manage symptoms. And I think that's important for people to know that you can, that, that you're never going to, in my opinion, and, and if anyone has, they should text me or let me know, but I don't, you're never going to find medicine. And you probably know this because you suffer from what we're talking about. You're never going to find a pill that you take and you're like, ha, ah. like, that's just not going to happen. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. I, I, when people say that and I'm like, have you met me? Do you think these <laughs> pills just like, I, it would be, but I just think it's really it's highly unlikely, but that doesn't mean that things can't just feel better. It, it's, you know, it's, it's not easy. And did something happen a year ago that you can point to where it's like, oh, this was a turning point or was it just a gradual, all of a sudden you found yourself feeling kind of shitty? No, I got in a very bad car accident and I, I don't mean to get emotional, but I never felt so alone. I, I literally almost died and it was really scary. And it was, it was very difficult because I felt like my best friend was out of the country. I didn't have a boyfriend and it was like, I'm alone. Like I could have died and like, no one would have known. Like my dog wasn't even in the car. And I just remember feeling so alone. I think I, I was already going a little down, you know, and then that happened and it just, it also, it really made me not feel in control. Mm. Of course, because if someone had hit me from the side, I spun 180 degrees, I ended up in the other lane going the other direction. And then from there, it just really got really bad. And six months prior to that, I wasn't feeling great. And my psychiatrist had mentioned ketamine. And I thought like, what? Like as in special K, like that's how I knew ketamine. <laughs> like as in that, I mean, now this was before Hustlers, but you know, like Hustlers where they drug the men to take the money. And I was like, isn't this for horses? And he, he was like, no, people are taking it. It can really help you. But I am not a big hallucinogenic drug person because I'm more of a control freak. So it was very scary to me to think, oh, I'm going to go and do this. Mm -hmm. um, but because things had gotten so bad, he was like, you should try it. Like, you know, let's call the doctor at the clinic and see. And when you say so bad, walk us through like what your normal yeah. day during that time was like. So it was, you know, again, during the, the right after the accident, like it was the summer and a, a lot of people were away, you know, and you just, I felt very isolated and I would just wake up and think, why am I like doing this? You know, like what? I, I've worked so hard at so many things and my life isn't where I thought it would be. And honestly, the only thing that really kept me going was my dog. I've been there. <laughs> yeah. 
because I just felt like it's okay. I just felt like you know. When I when I rescued Arthur, like he was really, you know, difficult, and I I felt like if I left him, no one would understand him the way that maybe people don't understand me. Mm-hmm. You're gonna make me cry. I rescued a dog who yeah. also had major issues yeah. that I didn't know about when I rescued him. <laughs> They, you know, started manifesting three to six months in. And yeah. I used to think, and I spent years and thousands and thousands of dollars trying to help this dog through. I remember you telling me that last time. And I, I remember being in therapy and thinking like, well, people are telling me to put this dog down. Like, I'm not making any progress in my therapy. Should we put me <laughs> down too? Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, I know. You're like, can I be put down? So for anyone out there who you think might be feeling that way right now, yeah, what would you say to them? I would say that you, it's okay to feel like this. You know, it's not, it's, it's normal. And there's hope that you can find tools that can help you. And I'm, I'm hoping through this podcast, it's going to help you feel just a little better or it even maybe there's some comfort in numbers you know exactly. that you're not the only one out there and even if we all struggle slightly differently because we're all individuals there are other people maybe going through something similar who can relate absolutely i think that there's so much pain and shame in um and shame really in in feeling like this or dealing with this and i would hope that People don't feel ashamed for being depressed or sad. And it's okay to not be okay. Like we live in this society where everyone, especially more women than men, like have to be smiling and have to be upbeat and have to be happy. And you know what? Like we've all been better. Like it's fine to not be okay. And it's okay to say I've been better. Yeah. It's okay to say, you know what? I'm not doing great. Glennon Doyle talks about how, we need women that are like out of control. Like not, everyone's trying so hard to be me. I'm talking to myself, like control this, everything. And how about people just be fucking messes? Yeah, and that that. there's beauty in in that mess. That everybody sort of being that perfect package is actually ultimately one, not possible or realistic and two, kind of boring. So Katie, I know that you're, for the rest of this podcast, are going to be asking five questions to every single guest yes. you have on. Okay. So to christen this inaugural episode, mm-hmm. I would like to ask you, I'm turning the microphone on you, and I'm asking you those five questions. Okay. And the right. first one is, what do you do for mental fun? Um, I'm a big advocate of British shows british crime shows so i love i love anyone with an accent um maybe that's some sort of subconsciously because i'm so disappointed in our country right now so i just don't want to hear americans talk. i just want to hear some british crime irish scottish just some sort of crime no. show question two when yeah. is the last time you cried I, I mean i cry a lot i would say to be honest 
Um, and I don't, and I, I think that's a good thing. I mean, growing up, my mom would cry at anything, you know, anything, there'd be a trailer for a film, she'd start crying. And I think that taught us that it's okay to cry where I don't think people, some people have that. Okay. So Katie, question three, what are you currently reading? I'm currently reading Brene Brown's, I thought it was just me. And then in parentheses, it says, but it isn't. And she talks a lot about the shame that we were talking about with feelings. And she's just really brilliant the way that she puts everything into perspective and makes it, makes it really relatable. Um, it's also cool that she hates the word self-help, which I hate mm -hmm. also. And she always, cause she thinks it should be a group thing getting better and thinks that they're like, we've said before, comfort in numbers and comfort in, I mean, the title, I thought it was just me, but it isn't, you know, it's like, I've been better. How about you? I think it's really relatable that people aren't alone and that so many people are, are dealing with different issues and different, you know, thoughts and their own sort of battles. Okay. Question four, what's the best or worst piece of advice you've been given? Uh, the best advice I've been given was by a pattern maker I've worked with for many years who told me you shouldn't feel guilty about anything. And I grew up Catholic. So guilt was something that I was very familiar with. And I don't know, something in the way she said it. Uh, once again, she had an accent. So when you have an accent and you talk to me, I'm going to pay more attention to you. And she, I don't know, it just helped sort of absolve me of guilt. And my worst advice, I think that I could say is when people are constantly, I think when I was growing up, I was always told like, oh, it's too much or you're like too loud or it's too funny. And I think people should stop. If someone's saying to you like, oh, you're too much, like you should just tell them to fuck off. Or say thank you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or like, thank you. It, Who it says really, you're too funny is a bad thing? I don't know. I went to a very strict school. I was thrown out of it. So I, I'm just saying like, <laughs> I see kids that my friends have and, they, and it breaks my heart when you see like schools or people trying to, you know, micromanage them or I, I, I don't, I think it's a bad thing when everyone's trying to be so contained, you know, contain yourself up. The fifth and final question, and I know you mentioned an account earlier, but the fifth question is, what Instagram account do you find uplifting? Right. So it's um, Ty Hunter is his account, but it's, it's T-Y and then T-R-Y-O-N-E. He's a stylist. It's funny. It's, it's like, has it all. It's just, you know, it has great advice. It has advice that like, sometimes you don't even know, like, you're like, wait, are you here in the room? Like that you really need, you know? Well, those are the five questions. Thank you for inviting me to interview you. Thank you, Jessica. For this start of a really cool journey and, and sharing with all of us. Thank you for tuning in to Ben Better, How About You? To learn more, please visit benbetterhbu.com and check out our Instagram, bbhbu. Slide into our DMs with your questions and comments. Also, be sure to subscribe for your weekly prescription. This pharmacy is open 24-7.